0: We heard stories about, you see firms, private equity firms reaching out to their founders who, you know, reaching out to each other on Slack. That just kind of stirred up the immediacy of the crisis and a bank in that type of environment needs to be able to respond with an equal amount of urgency. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred.
1: And I'm and This is big episode number one. On this episode, we'll be spending a little time introducing Fred and myself, discussing what you can expect from our podcast. Afterwards, we will be introducing one of our regular features, Quick Takes, where Fred and I share our thoughts on what's going on. If you're a fan of the show, please do follow us on Instagram. At, at banking on disruption. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Let's get into it. We're really excited for what we have planned for the show, but first I thought it would be good for us to give our listeners a better idea about our backgrounds. So Fred, tell me how you got introduced to Salesforce.
0: Thanks Dane. So I was working for a company called Options Express. And Options Express was an online broker, pioneer in online trading, especially for options and other derivatives. And I was a, a decidedly you know, back office guy. I was an operations guy. I was head of, of margin credit risk at the firm. And one of the things that I, I took on was what I would describe as operations technology modernization and it was it was interesting because for being an online firm and and being founded as a obviously you know tech heavy tech first firm we had a very dynamic and engaging front end a lot of cutting edge tools for the time but the middle office the back office were still pretty manual and so I had taken on figuring out how to bring some more automation and some more technology to our middle and back office. And one day my boss came to see me and he's like, hey, we just signed a contract for this thing called Salesforce. And I'll be honest with you, I I didn't even know what Salesforce was at that time. But he said, "Uh, listen, they're responsible for getting this up and running and, and in our user hands in six months and you know, kind of good luck. And, and I really didn't know uh, where to get started. so like I think a lot of people uh, especially people that have been in the ecosystem for a while now I am an accidental admin I, but it's been it's been great what what year was that? Oh gosh that was um let's see that's that's got to be at least. 17 years ago, so what are we, 2003 or 2023? It's got to be like 2005, 2006. So early-ish early days of Salesforce. I don't go all the way back to like 1999 or anything, but Salesforce was definitely a very different product at the time, you know, very, there's no lightning. It was all a classic interface. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I am so old on the ecosystem that the first org that I, I worked on, that Options Express org, you could still create
1: S controls.
0: So that's, that's
1: that that dates it. Wow. And it was also at a time period where I mean maybe 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 it was at the turning point. I I'm curious what your thoughts are, but it was it was in that era when A lot of business leaders didn't necessarily just did not value technology in the same way that they do today you know like technology had not fulfilled on enough productivity promises or bottom line performance promises or better customer experience promises i think for a lot of us like technology was still just kind of a pain in the butt sometimes right wasn't it sort of at like the tail end ish of that era or do you feel differently about it
0: no i I definitely see elements of it i mean at, at the time i was working for a company that was founded to be technology first uh but even within that company all the emphasis on technology was put on the front end you know rolling out New tools, making the trading platform better, making it more dynamic, or and or making the customer acquisition process better. You know, we had a really innovative online application process where you could literally start an application and go end to end and be approved for trading and fund instantly and trade at the time within about fifteen minutes. Wow! Um, which you know, going back fifteen years, that that's pretty good. But, you know, when I looked at my my middle and back office counterparts, our, our new account department was still, for a lot of accounts, printing out applications and documenting the approvals and then putting it in the file box. Mm-hmm. When we were doing trade reconciliations, you know, our operations people were, in many cases, printing out trade blotters and manually reconciling trades. So there there was still very much, you know, a group of people, especially... Well, that had been in a career for 15, 20 years or more at the time that came from a background of not using technology and were definitely skeptical. Mm. I'd also say like technology was not as ubiquitous, right? At the time, I might almost say it felt like technology was a destination. Like I'm going to now go do this on my computer rather than this is just how we get work done. So it's it's definitely shifted. I think people that weren't in the workforce 20 years ago probably don't realize how different it, it, it was. And so I think it's a great point. Options Express, and then where did you go from there? It was a great journey. I was there for a little over 10 years. Um, we were eventually bought by Charles Schwab, and I stayed on after that acquisition for about... Um, about 3 years, you know, helped with a lot of the transition activities, but I kind of felt like I was I was, you know, reached a a turning point in in my career. And we had gone through financial crisis at the time, and it was really just enjoying the salesforce part of my job a lot more than I was enjoying the other parts of my job and it and it just felt like a good time to make a transition. And so I started thinking about I am liking Salesforce so much, how could I turn this into a career? And I went to Dreamforce that year and spent a little bit of time not just learning about what was new on the platform, but I spent a little bit more time than I otherwise would have looking at partners, ISV partners and SI partners, and you know what having a job in the ecosystem would look like. And I uh, ended up meeting with somebody called Cloud Sherpas and uh, just seemed like a really good fit you know salesforce has started to become a little bit more industry focused cloud sherpas had one of their main offices in new york and so they got a fair number of financial services clients there as well as financial services clients across the the country and they started to see the value of combining that industry knowledge with salesforce knowledge and so it just seemed like a good fit we had some conversations over the next couple of months i ended up transitioning over and and becoming a consultant in the salesforce
1: ecosystem following january wow uh, yeah Cloud sherpas was definitely you know one of the early very very successful sis in in the uh, salesforce ecosystem and then just bringing you to today you know, you, you center around, obviously, Salesforce and financial services. How are you still spending, like, when your day in and day out work and financial services, is it centered in any one particular aspect of FS or do you sort of run the gamut?
0: You know, I I do run the gamut. I tend to probably spend... Most of my time working with banking clients, uh, it's, it's a numbers game. There's way, way more banks than there are, you know, insurance companies
1: or, or investment banks or asset management firms. Mm. Um, so tell me about your consulting journey after CloudSherpas. Where, where did you go from there? What was, what was that experience? Sure. So uh,
0: Cloud CloudSherpas was acquired by Accenture and I uh, stayed through the transition and I learned a lot. At the time working at, at Accenture, but I definitely felt that I enjoyed working at a, at a smaller, more nimble firm. Uh, and so I started looking and I found a company called Silverline. And at the time, they'd been around for a while and were really growing. They had two industries that they focused on at the time. One was healthcare, the other was financial services. And they were looking for somebody to come and help specifically around helping to scale up the financial services side of the business. And that sounded like a really big opportunity. So I I joined the leadership there initially to lead financial services delivery, ultimately to lead uh, financial services, uh, go to market and and sales for um, about a total of four years. And that was a really exciting challenge. From there, uh, I went to Cap Gemini, running their North America Financial Services Salesforce business. Towards the end of 2021, I moved to IBM. And uh, for the last year and a half, I've been a partner in IBM, and I am a leader in our North America Financial Services Salesforce business. So, Dane, enough about me. Tell me a little bit about how you
1: got involved in the ecosystem. Yeah, interesting question. I, I started my recruitment career, uh, nineties with a company called Aerotech at that time, very hard charging culture. Uh, for example, Kaizen Fridays could probably never get away with this today from an HR standpoint, but sitting around with the team you know, ties loose, only feedback, constructive criticism. You were not allowed to say to someone, hey, you're great at this and you're great at that. You could only talk about what their weaknesses were and where they needed to improve. There were... I, I thinking back on some of those conversations all, all designed to help grow. I mean, it was a very sales oriented growth oriented organization, but for example, feedback was, I mean, it was harsh at times. For example, you have really bad breath. You need to brush your teeth more often. <laughs> uh, you stutter, you don't speak clearly, you say, um, too much. Your car is dirty. <laughs> I kid you not. But a lot of the criticism was actually helpful, kind of looking more like it process, and plenty of people there that took the edge off of things and weren't trying to be mean, but really help a colleague advance, grow, learn, etc. I love the concept and I
0: I love the concept of Kaizons in general. And I'm sure that a lot of it evolved as a person matured in their career. You know, you're probably not giving the, you have bad breath and your car is dirty feedback to somebody that's, that's five years in. Right. But that's, that's a very real thing to somebody that maybe is, is new in a position where they're out Selling themselves, selling roles, selling the company, and then as somebody matures, there's always room for improvement. I think that's what I like the, the best about that Kaizen approach is it, it comes, if I remember from from Japan, with that always learning kind of a mindset.:
1: Exactly. Like constant improvement, always learning. And you are right. A lot of us were we were young. We had a lot to learn, and the organization had that program in place to just help accelerate that process. Um, so I look at it more silver linings, and and for sure, it was it was very effective. We, you know, our goal was at that time to go from, I think it was actually 120 million in sales, so we were already a decent size organization, by the way, all staff, org, we weren't placing people into permanent roles, we were only doing staff. Org. And, um, and the goal was to go from 120 million in sales to a billion. And, uh, and the career path at that time was recruitment, senior recruitment, sales, senior sales that was that was the career path. and I kind of bucked the system. I I at that point in my career, I just wanted to focus on recruitment. I I, I wasn't ready to let go of that. And so myself, a couple of others, we kind of forged a, a new direction within Aerotech at that time uh, and basically helped establish, a bona fide, you know, recruitment career path that still to this day, you know, is thriving and and exists. Um and so I also took a lot of interest in technology. There were a few of us that working with Boston Consulting Group helped, you know, design, innovate our first applicant tracking slash CRM tool. I, we had one at the time that was green screen, so to speak. No one was using it. So obviously something with a GUI, uh, Windows-based. And I I really enjoyed that experience working with the guys from, from BCG. It was about a three-month project and uh, my first deep dive into technology. And I, I really got hooked at that time. What was it about the technology that really hooked you? It was really the process of working with BCG and how they were diving deep into our workflows and documenting those workflows, asking a lot of questions, you know, clearly looking for opportunities to refine or sort of optimize those workflows all to ultimately develop a custom software application from. I wasn't involved, obviously, in the development piece, but uh, played a big part in the front end of that process and helping to define those workflows, at least for the recruitment side of the business. And it was just really cool.
0: No, that that's really exciting. So you, you mentioned you weren't involved in the development of the technology, was that because you weren't technical or is that because you moved on to do something else?
1: Was not technical. I actually did end up to go do something else. I, after about a three and a half year one, run with Aerotech, I started to feel like I I needed to go do other things. Recruitment-wise, I I wanted to explore the corporate side of recruitment. I wanted to dive deep into placing people into full-time jobs versus just doing everything contract or staff. I felt more meaningful to head in that direction and, and work with people in that sense versus just, you know, Hey, are you interested in this job and what's your rate kind of discussion? Um, so, It was also an interesting time period, Aerotech, to leave. At at that time, they took a really strong position on non-compete. They had a big legal team, and they were aggressively pursuing people that would leave the organization and in any form or fashion try to continue their recruitment career with a competitor or inside an organization, really whatever it was, and... And so, um, I took a different approach. I was very transparent. I kind of turned over all of my data. I just made it clear to them that, Hey, this isn't about, you know, me trying to be sneaky with you. This is not about me trying to leverage the people. I know the people that I've built relationships at my Aerotech career somewhere else. It's really just about me continuing my recruitment career. But in a little different direction, and so that's how the conversations were unfolding.
0: No, that's really great. I, I love that you know transparent approach and and really helping to build that um that trust in in you even as you were you're transitioning out of that role.
1: So how did how did that end up working out? It worked out great. I I went to Ericsson. Uh, I felt like home, yeah, my I'm Swedish, at least Swedish descent. Uh, Ericsson obviously, very successful Swedish company and was actually helping them run their university relations program. It was very interesting. I was especially being young. I enjoyed being on the road. Uh, so for months on end, we were we were in two, sometimes three cities every week. Um, I know what it's like to wake up in a hotel room in the middle of the night and ask yourself, where am I? <laughs> so I worked, worked with Ericsson for a while in that capacity. I then basically continued my contract recruiting career, leading me into... Consulting firms, management consulting firms, technology consulting firms, Ernst & Young did some work with Deloitte, actually did work with IBM, Uh, and then some kind of mid-tier type firms like MCI and some other organizations that just had different specialties, you know, some of them kind of focused in the federal space, others with a much broader focus.
0: Tell me now what what really gets you excited and and passionate about getting
1: going in the morning. Well, it was at Quest when I first, you know, worked with Salesforce, the the leaders of that office were looking for an applicant tracking system and also a way to, you know, keep up with you know, some of the deals that they were managing more like on the sales side of things with their, their customer UTC. And they took an interest in Salesforce and asked me actually to play a point role, you know, they knew my background at that point I had implemented and been part of implementing, you know, quite a few applicant tracking systems. And there's, there's definitely a lot of similarities between applicant tracking and CRM. And so, leveraging that background, they asked me to implement Salesforce. So I want to say that was 2004. Uh, I worked a lot with Salesforce over the phone. Needed a lot of help, you know, to to make that happen. It was uh, it was a much different experience than some of the other platforms that I had I'd worked with prior. And you know, looking back, there's probably a lot that I would do differently today uh but that was my my first experience with salesforce and really enjoyed it advancing to today uh you know workstream is we're a startup and our our platform is built on salesforce technology and we think about career advisory we think about supporting company growth we think about talent acquisition in its future state digitally transformed. And so that's the direction that we're heading in today. And all of that, you know, on Salesforce technology and largely, almost entirely actually, you know, focused on the Salesforce ecosystem. And that's definitely what gets me up in the morning. It's it's really exciting.
0: And it's that uh, it sounds really interesting. I I'd love to understand a little bit more about how it is that you're leveraging your Salesforce technology and your background in being hands-on as well as obviously your background in, in doing consulting and doing recruiting and staffing work and bringing that
1: all together. That's a good question. I think even today my strength is still, More on the workflow side of things, you know, like closer to maybe a solutions architect role. Uh, Getting better at the configuration work. I spent a lot of time on the trailhead. I do administer our stack. Oftentimes with getting a lot of help (laughs) from industry colleagues and, and a couple of partners that I've worked with obviously lots of interactions with Salesforce and their support teams. Um, but no, no less excitement. Um, and you know, in terms of where we head from here, I'm going to say unveiling that soon and (laughs) you know, story for another time, (laughs) right? I
0: like it. Leave, leave the people wanting more. I like it.
1: So coming back to our podcast spent several weeks planning, you know, thinking about who our audience is, what's important to them and what we were going to bring to the table to, um, help them learn, help them grow, keep them entertained. And with that in mind, you know, Fred, I'd, I'd love to get your take on this. What do you, what do you see that's unique about this podcast?
0: No I, lo- I love the question and it has been a journey I've really enjoyed the last couple of weeks you know talking through how we were going to create a a real value proposition I I'm, I'm a big consumer of podcasts and you know when when I open my my podcast app there's there's no lack of options of things to listen to so why why do we need one more and what I think, from my perspective, this really boiled down to is combining the two of us and, and our backgrounds, we're able to really fill a niche that I don't see filled by another medium out there. So I've got my hands up, but I realize this is an audio podcast and not video. But if yeah. you would just picture a Venn diagram, right? And the first circle is financial services you know, fintech with a sharper focus on banking. Mm -hmm. And then the second circle overlapping is technology with a focus on the Salesforce and the Salesforce ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And then the third circle is career and business development. And where those three circles come together is where I sort of see this podcast living. The other thing that I think really makes this podcast unique is that we're an unscripted co-hosted show. So I hear a lot of, of shows out there have a single host and and guests. I like the dynamic of having you know both of us interacting, you know, both one on one, and also when we have our guests on. I, I kind of harken back to uh, growing up and watching Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon or for for people that are primarily from this millennia, maybe a Kelly Ripa and Ryan Seacrest example makes more sense. But the point is we each bring our own perspective to the conversation and we're not here to constantly agree with each other. You know, most of the podcasts I listen to where there are two hosts, when when they have different perspectives and they're bringing contrasts and different angles to the conversation, it makes for a much better conversation.
1: Couldn't agree more. I, I think that one aspect of of what you're sharing that I find particularly interesting is the process of being able to disagree with each other about different topics and, and still be friends and maybe even come away from those conversations closer than before. You know, we're living in an era where, um, it's, it's oftentimes difficult. I think a lot of us are struggling with not being on the same page all the time. And totally. So, yeah. So that, that aspect of, of our podcast and those dynamics I'm, I'm keen about.
0: Totally. It's, it's in, you know, like we said before, it's it's been a journey. Like we, we've we had, I think I estimated earlier before we were on the air, about 25, 30 hours of discussion and planning and debate. We're, we're clearly both coming to the table with perspectives on how things can be. And, you know, I'm not going to say like every conversation was just us giving each other high fives and like, yeah, let's go, man. This is perfect. I mean, we both had points of view on uh, what we wanted to, to accomplish. And I think we did a really good job even to date in, in creating the podcast of getting both of our, our fingerprints on it. And, and, and that's the same type of a dynamic I want to read all the conversations.
1: For sure. Re- really enjoyable process, too. So yeah, excited to see, to see it all unfold.
0: Absolutely. So do you want to talk, Dan, a little bit about the general format that we're, our listeners are going to expect every time they tune into one of our episodes?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, this is something we actually, boy, we, we really dove deep into this. And where where we landed is each episode starts with a main topic, you know, it features one or more industry leaders After the main topic, we have shorter segments that cover things like current trends, Salesforce ISV products. Definitely excited to go deep into that career advancement, what's happening with careers in general. Also being able to dive into like market creating opportunities, strategies, things that inspire creativity and innovation. I think we're all looking to, to kind of spend more time looking at our, our work and what we're trying to do with our customers from a blue ocean perspective versus red ocean perspective. And so hope to, you know, share, share techniques and kind of put concepts and ideas out there that, that feed that sort of creative side of, of what we do, you know, day in and day out and definitely find time for just storytelling and entertainment, hopefully to crack a smile or two, kind of keep people, you know, lifestyle stuff, et cetera, not always being so serious about things. Um, What's your take? Do you feel in the same way about that? Fred.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you're spot on, Dane. I mean, I'm very excited about the way that we've structured the show with that main segment where we're going to bring in other voices, experts to talk about trends, digital transformation stories, career transformation, etc. And then those additional rotating segments that you you mentioned, where we're going to be able to dive a little bit more deeply into some topics. I know we have a few different rotating segments. Which one are you most excited
1: about? You know, there's a side of me that wants to say all of them and not just to promote, but I think they're each gonna be interesting in their own light. I think today I'm gonna go with Quick Takes.
0: Yeah, I think I'm on the same page with you. We obviously are the only two people that came up with the different features. So I think we're we're both excited about all of them. But there's a reason why we decided to include quick takes in that first episode and it's it's also the one that I'm probably the most excited about doing. And I think that makes a perfect segue for us to transition from our introduction, have our first quick take segment. All right, we're back, and we're excited for our first ever Quick Take segment. First this week, I've been meaning to ask you, Dane, have you been keeping up with the four-day workweek study? What's your take? I have.
1: Not following it super close at this point. Definitely keeping up with it. You're talking about the one that was sort of hosted out of UK, correct? Yeah, absolutely.
0: The latest one was in England, but I know they've they've read a few over the last couple of years, and it's just part of this movement of getting people to move from a five-day
1: work week to a four-day work week. I looked through some of the results of the study. Definitely interesting. I, I see some challenges ahead, especially generationally speaking. I think some generations are going to flow with that so to speak a little a little easier than others but what are some of the challenges that you anticipate with that
0: Yeah you know there's a few things that come to mind I mean one is obviously Europe and and the US have very different work cultures I think one of my favorite memes is that thing that goes around every year that has the the US out of office compared to a European out of office right the european one says you know, I've gone hiking for the next six weeks, you know, reach out to me when I'm back. And the Americans is like, I'm having surgery this afternoon. I'll have my mobile on me, you know, ring me if you need me. You know, we, we Americans don't disconnect from work in the same way that Europeans do. Um, I also think that it will be difficult to get people who have compensation that is directly tied to effort, you know, variable compensation, whether it's bonuses or commissions, to throttle back if they're really hard drivers. You know, I love the idea, but I I think there's going to be challenges with it as well.
1: I agree. I think there's going to be challenges. Obviously, the other factor is how do products like ChatGPT, how do they sort of fold in to this improving productivity, do they put us in a place where we're more easily attaining a four day work week? It's gonna be an interesting story to continue to watch it unfold and I think it's definitely gonna have its challenges. But I'm supportive of the idea. I'd I'd love to see something like that happen here. So I would too. I think it would offer a lot more flexibility to some
0: people, especially people that are in transitions whether they're caring for children caring for a parent um, so I, I love the, the idea one of the things I know that the, the group behind it says is that you know in the Industrial Revolution we went from seven-day work weeks to five day work weeks and now that we're in this information revolution you know is it time to look at that again and I'm totally open to it I think it would be a, a neat experiment for sure
1: absolutely Switching gears, we heard a lot, you know, banking crisis, not really a story today, but we heard a lot about SVB and signature, not much since. Any reflecting back, there's been more information shared. Obviously that's your world, Fred, financial services. What's your take on things? I think I'll remind
0: everybody by saying balance sheet at those two banks were very different than the balance sheets at most American banks. Um, what kicked off the paddock a little over a month ago was that one Wednesday evening, Silicon Valley Bank announced that they were planning on raising about $2 billion. And, you know, they were doing that to help strengthen their financial position. And their position was weak because they had a significant amount of their assets invested in long-dated securities, long-dated bonds. And and these bonds were were safe. They were primarily government bonds. But as the Fed continued to raise interest rates, those long-dated securities lost value, at least on paper. Uh, And so long as the bank could continue to hold those securities to maturity, they'd be fine. But if they were forced to redeem them, before maturity, to give their customers deposits, they would have to take a loss. And that's exactly what happened. And then once the blood was in the water, it was pretty much a straight run on the bank. Silicon Valley Bank wasn't liquid enough, and that's why regulators stepped in. Uh, Signature Bank had some very similar issues. Lots of depositors with balances above 250000 as well as some exposure to crypto. Uh, but the story was pretty much the same. Usher's customers began to look at them, and the same story played out. You know, the last couple of weeks we've also had you know a little bit of easing in in the in the rates. You know, the Fed sets rates, but rates of market fluctuate. In the last couple of weeks, those long dated rates have come down uh, a little bit, and so it's it's given banks a little bit more breathing room. What I think is interesting coming out of it is. You know, I continue to think about what could have been done in that period between Wednesday and Friday, you know, to get ahead of the story, to reach out to customers that are are critical, either from a a size or from a, a network of influence perspective. And I think banks right now definitely need to continue to look at customer experience, you know, making sure they have the right technology and tools to understand their customer base to understand, you know, who's potentially at risk at leaving, uh, to understand who their big influencers are amongst their their customer base. You know, one of the things at Silicon Valley Bank is we heard stories about, you know, VC firms, private equity firms reaching out to their network companies, you know, founders who, you know, network at various events, you know, reaching out to each other on Slack and and, you know, that just kind of stirred up the immediacy of the crisis. And a bank in that type of environment needs to be able to respond with an equal amount of urgency. And that's one of the things that I I hope banks are taking away from the
1: situation. A really good point. Communications happen much more quickly today than say 10 years ago, the last time we were seeing these types of failures in, in the banking space. I think it's an excellent point on your part. So is this to say that within a bank's sort of risk mitigation, there's much more emphasis on its ability to communicate and sort of manage the, the tone of things, the vibe of things. I'm not sure if I'm using the right terms, but that's sort of what you're getting at. Yes.
0: Absolutely what I'm getting at. It's one of the my favorite stories coming out of last month or so is a couple of different bank CEOs went to the degree of you know sending an email to all of their depositors with their phone number and said, Hey, if you have questions, call me. And I think that's that's beautiful from a transparency perspective. It's it's frightening from a scalability, right? You can do that potentially. If you want to work very long hours and you're a bank that has a couple billion dollars in assets if you're a 20 billion dollar bank or 100 billion dollar bank or you know a top five bank that's not scalable and you know most people i think their understanding of bank runs maybe goes back to it's a wonderful life right and in that era you had to walk into the bank branch and and banks had strategies to mitigate the rate at which deposits could leave. You know, you only have so many tellers, you don't have to have all the teller windows open. You know, tellers can uh, process transactions a little bit more slowly. In today's era, you know, with a couple of taps of your phone, you can take, you know, your, your $5 million, your $10 million in deposits and instantaneously move them someplace else. And when communication and transactions are moving that quickly, banks need to be able to get ahead of stories just as quickly and have the right message in front of the right people so that they have an opportunity to save off the crisis.
1: It would be interesting to see maybe if polls were conducted, the truth is is put into that poll, asking people the question, had the bank sort of done an excellent job or a better job of getting in front of that Maybe Scalable is a recorded video from the CEO that immediately goes to everyone. Maybe a better sense of customer behavior, all things we do on Salesforce. Maybe that personal email, call me if you have any questions, goes to sort of those key influencers within your bank. So you're thinking an approach kind of more along those lines, yes?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people like, appreciate, and frankly these days expect, you know, personalization. And I think that making sure you have your data systems in place so that you know who are potentially the most influential and the most vulnerable customers to leaving And then you can, you can activate a number of different channels to reach out to them. You know, maybe for some of them, it is that CEO or that market president reaching out directly, maybe even with a, with a phone call, Um, maybe for some other ones, it's putting an action item in the inbox of your relationship bankers. Maybe they each call their top 20, you know, maybe the next tier down are getting a, a more personalized email. Maybe, in some cases, you're calling up you know somebody who's a very influential person in your in your bank, but accountants, financial advisors, they're very influential in their markets. Maybe you know somebody has a, a push to reach out to them so they could reach out to their customers and help, you know with that message of stability. The point is to make sure that you understand in real time what your depositor base and your customer base looks like and what they're potentially experiencing so that you do have the data and can respond, you know, in, in the fastest, most effective way possible.
1: Makes, makes a ton of sense. Really does. Fundamental stuff, right? It's bread and butter stuff, but I think it's
0: stuff that a lot of banks don't necessarily look, look at. Um, right. I want to shift the conversation. I know we've only got a few minutes for quick takes. Uh, back to Salesforce a little bit. Salesforce recently announced that they're launching a new community uh, alongside the Trailblazer community. And this community is being called SalesBlazer. Ignoring for a moment that SalesBlazer
1: isn't actually a word. What do you think about it as a concept? It's interesting. I, a few things that come to mind. I, you know, when researching SalesBlazer, it's clearly still taking shape. I, I understand the message is learn relevant skills, connect with fellow sales professionals. So the network effect, grow your career, you know, earning resume worthy credentials, et cetera. So in that sense, very similar to trailblazer sort of experiences. What happens to trailblazer though? So salespeople get their dedicated space do we start to see trailblazer sort of segment divest if you will in a similar way does that already exist and maybe i'm just not attuned with it what's your take on that i think that there are two
0: very different and not necessarily as overlapping communities i mean one of the things i know i've noticed trending over the last couple years is that salesforce is putting out more trails that are less functional configuration developery and and more about you know business and industry and those types of skills including selling And I think this is kind of a more formal way to draw a bright line between, you know, we want to help our people that are technical on the platform get better. And we also want to help our users that are maybe less technical, but are still critical and and still need to understand all the nuances of this very sophisticated platform get better at their job. What I what I kind of hope is on on the tail end of it is you know some other communities focused on you know, users that are more service oriented, as well as users that are more marketing oriented. And I I don't know if that's in the works, but I I, I love the idea that Salesforce is thinking about these different types of Salesforce professionals
1: differently as far as what their exact needs are. Interesting points I. I recently had some experiences with call it soft skills trainings presentation uh skills related marketing strategy uh within within Trailblazer I was really impressed with the content. it was super helpful I definitely came away from uh those you know, those learnings in a better place, especially the presentation badge that, that I had earned there. It was really fantastic content. So interested to see how that continues to take shape. Another thing that I'm noticing is Salesforce really staying front and center around salespeople. It makes sense that word is in their company name. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's very centered to their organization, so that aspect of it I also love makes makes all the sense in the world. It's They've of, got some.
0: They've got some pretty sick hoodies, and I got to get my hands on one of those. Exactly.
1: Exactly. The shifting a little bit. So Salesforce World Tour is coming up. Um, I guess about three weeks or so um and again at the javits center followed by a concert featuring the roots at madison square garden what are you looking forward to at salesforce world tour in new york i'm really excited i'm going i actually
0: missed both of the last year i was on vacation for one and i had a, another conflict for the other And it felt a little bit like there was a a hole missing in my Salesforce calendar. So I'm excited to go back. Uh, This year, I'm pretty excited primarily because they've like blown it up to be three times the conference. They took last year, as I recall, they had Slack Frontiers the day before and then World Tour was the next day. This year, they're taking all on one day, three floors of the Javits, one floor is going to be, you know, regular kind of Salesforce core marketing cloud. You know, the customer three hundred and sixty uh, experience that most people are used to at the world tour. Then another level is going to be dedicated to Slack. Is you know, kind of the the reimagination of Slack Frontier conference, and then a third level is going to be Mulesoft focused. And so. I'm excited for all that additional content, and so it should be a really exciting day. Uh, I'm also excited, kind of selfishly, that uh, they've decided this year to put a little bit of a break in time between when the content ends at World Tour and when the concert happens. So the content's ending, like, at 5 o'clock. And the concert, I don't think kicks off until seven or seven thirty, And so there's a couple hours in there together with clients and other people that I know, um, uh, you know, kind of after the event, and now there's a, a couple hour block where I'll get to meet with people kind of reflect on the day and then, you know, go into concert mode and, uh, I'm a big fan of the roots. And so that should be a good show. Also, hopefully I'm, I'm around to go to work the next day after, <laughs> after 12 hours of talking and in, in concerts.
1: For sure. Are are you, are you heading interesting. up? Interesting. Online. I'm Salesforce plus we've got sometimes difficult for me to travel. My, uh, my partner, my wife, Christina works in healthcare. She's pretty far up the food chain. It does make it difficult for us to get away and we had already postponed some travel plans just where she and i need a break so i'm prioritizing i guess i'm being a little european right now (laughs) i'm i'm prioritizing that but i do plan on on participating enjoying some of it through salesforce plus i like it well
0: that's awesome well thanks dane i think this was an awesome first edition of quick takes and we'll talk again soon
1: for sure. Have a great day, Fred. You too.
0: Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed the first episode of Banking on Disruption. We have a lot of exciting stuff planned for our upcoming episodes, but most importantly, we want to hear from you. Dane and I would love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for new episodes. Why not drop us a line? New episodes drop every other Thursday, but in the meantime... You can visit our website at bankingondisruption.com for show notes, including a full transcript of today's show. Also, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And finally, we'd love if you followed us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Banking on Disruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cavenna, wishing you success in your digital pursuits.